Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode is the third in a special series of audio excerpts from our new book, Professor at Large, The Cornell Years, by the beloved comedian, actor, producer, and director, John Cleese. For nearly 20 years, Cleese has held an official position as Professor at Large at Cornell University and has led many talks and lectures on campus on everything from script writing to psychology, religion to hotel management, and wine to medicine. Cleese is best known for his work on Monty Python's Flying Circus and Faulty Towers, as well as numerous other on-screen performances, including as Q in the James Bond franchise and Nearly Headless Nick in the Harry Potter movies. He holds an MA in law from Cambridge University and an honorary LLD from St. Andrews University, where he was rector for several years. The following audio excerpt is featured in the final chapter of the new book, a spirited conversation in 2017 between John Cleese and Cornell University Press Director Dean Smith in front of a live audience at Cornell University's Bailey Hall. So what's happening in 2019 for Monty Python? There's a big celebration. Oh, yes, the Victorian Albert, which is one of our great museums. They're, they're having a, well, they call it a retrospective, and there's going to be there's all, all the stuff, you know, the costumes and all this kind of thing. And it's going to be there for six months, and then it's going to tour over places like Tokyo and Paris and Berlin. And so it's rather fun. I'm quite looking forward to that, because we're all much too old and doddery to perform anymore. It was very good, that show we did, the last one, you know, at the O2. And it, was, it, was, it taught me something which I'd never, I'd never thought, sort of realized before, which is I always thought it was jolly good to make people laugh. And it's nice to make people laugh. You enjoy it when you're making people laugh. It feels good. That's very simple. But I always thought of it as just entertainment. And when I was in the when I was in the the O2, I used to sit there with Terry. We were doing two of those. uh, You know, oh yes, yes, John Paul Sartre. Oh yes, yes. We met him on holiday in Ibiza. Yes, he was very nice. He was a bit grumpy, but Mrs. Sartre. We were playing one of those, and I had about 10 seconds when I was able to look out into the audience. The lights were on the audience. I could see 16,000 people. And you know they were all having a really good time. And I realized it wasn't an ordinary comedy show, because the audience on the whole knew the lines better than we did. You know, and that's very unusual. Even Shakespearean scholars don't go to Hamlet and know every single line. Um, And so what was it? And I realized it wasn't a stage show. It was some kind of occasion. You know, we were making them laugh, but they knew the jokes, and they were still laughing at them. And and I realized that there was something very good going on because people were happy. And there's not as much of that around as there should be, as you might have noticed in recent years, particularly if you watch TV news. Uh, So it was lovely to see people just happy. And a few days later, um, I was, uh, who's that famous singer who sings Sweet Caroline? What is it? Neil Diamond. Neil, Neil Diamond. I was on a TV show with him. 
And uh, he started to sing Sweet Jane, and all the audience stood up. And, so, and I had the same feeling that here's a whole lot of people together, and there's a good spirit in the room. Everybody's happy with everyone else, and they're all having a good time. And I said, he thought, this is really important that we can give people an experience of just being in a room with lots of other people having a good time. You see what I mean? Because there's so much less of that these days with everyone focused on their wretched little computer. <laughs> Question from the hat. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Haslop, describe the worst first date you've ever been on. Really, they were all pretty terrible. Um, well, they were. I, I was so hopeless, as we used to say, with women. Is that a sexist thing to say? No. You have to be so careful these days. Yeah. <laughs> I like your laugh. <laughs> Come on, you have to laugh again. Come on, good laugh. <laughs> Where were we? I don't know. They were all hopeless. Oh, they were all hopeless. Yeah, I was so hopeless with, I can't say girls, can I? Young women. I was so helpless with, with, with young women. And it, it's because I didn't know. You see, I had a very uneasy relationship with my, my mother, emotionally. It was not a good relationship. She was a very neurotic woman, very neurotic. She's the only, only person I've ever met in my life who used to write her worries down so that she wouldn't forget him. <laughs> it was as though she had this vast spectrum of anxieties, and it, only she spent enough time worrying about them all, she somehow managed to keep them at bay. The actual act of worrying, you see what I mean? Kept the bad things away, and so if she forgot to worry about one of them, it would come and get her. <laughs> I tell you, if you have a brother like that, uh, as you grow up, it takes some time to get better. <laughs> is why I've spent about a quarter of my life in psychiatrist's chairs and another quarter in dentist chairs because I'm a war baby. I have the worst teeth in the world. I'm rambling, aren't I? Well, no, but you're, um, you're, there was a line in your book about your father preferring to be on the front rather than being home. Oh, that's right, yes. Well, she did have a pretty mean temper. She, there was, I always say there was only one thing that my mother wanted, just one thing, but that was her own way. <laughs> and if she didn't get it, there was trouble, you know? And uh, yes, there were, you know, tantrums and, and, and uh, a great deal of anger. And dad who'd fought in the First World War for three and a half years, I think he sometimes yearned for the relative. <laughs> tranquility of the trenches in <laughs> There was one, another scene where you're, you've come back and you're, you've got a career on writing television and they're trying to decide you, you want to take them to the movies or you're going to... Oh, yes, that's right. 
you suddenly realize, because uh, old people, people even as old as myself, they become so nervous and worried about all the things that could happen, you know. And I would, I would come down to Western Supermare to spend three or four days with them, and it was hard work. Um, and then some days I would get up and I'd say, how about going to the movies this afternoon? And this sort of anxiety, which, <laughs> well, what's, what's, uh, what, what, what mother would say, well, we're, we're, are we going to go before tea or after tea? <laughs> you know? and Dad would go and start looking at the weather after the weather. <laughs> 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 it was this is why I said, why don't we invade Poland? <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, I'd say, all right, let's not go to the movies, because it was causing so much fear and disruption, and what are we going to do? <laughs> I remember... <laughs> I had a wonderful psychiatrist once, not only was he Viennese and Jewish, but he knew Freud. He'd actually met Freud. <laughs> and I was talking to him about the problems I was having, and he said to me, John, uh, tell me, did things happen easily in your family? <laughs> <laughs> But then when you and your dad were playing cricket in the house, where was your mom? Oh, mom was, uh, my, my memories, were, I had a very nice relationship with dad. I loved him very much and he was very kind. In fact, the fact that I'm not psychologically scarred for life is entirely due to that dear man. But um, uh, we used to, she, you know, my mom was somewhere in the background because mom was very, very good had everything to do with providing the meals and making sure she was terribly good at that. And really great. It was just emotionally that she was lacking because she was so full of anxiety and people were always worried about what's going to happen next. You know, life was a series of hurdles. You know, God, we got breakfast this morning. How are we going to get? <laughs> life was a series of hurdles. So there was no, she had no energy over for anyone else. You see what I mean? Right. Which meant, it was, quite, it was quite amusing because she was not a stupid woman. I mean, she spoke impeccable English, never, didn't make grammatical mistakes. She spoke, she wrote uh, very good English. I mean, never spelling error, you know, no, she wasn't highly educated, but she was very literate. But uh, she just, she just couldn't, uh, couldn't manage things most of the time because she had, well, she, you see, she had no information. <laughs> she was only interested in what was about to affect her life in the next 10 minutes. So anything more than about 12 feet away from her wasn't of interest, you see. It was just anything that might come at her in the next 10 minutes. And, and, and the result was that um, she went through life without acquiring any information of the normal kind. So that when, for example, uh, my ex-wife. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry about that. <laughs> this ex-wife person um, produced a salad with very small quail's eggs in it. I don't know if you've ever eaten quail's eggs. They're tiny, tiny, little, completely pointless eggs. <laughs> 
she bought some and she put them in the salad. And my mother said, oh, are these, what, 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 are, what are these little eggs? And I said, well, they're mole's eggs. <laughs> and she said, really? And I said, yes, you see, uh, Alice Faye goes up on Hampstead Heath on Sunday mornings because on su um, uh, when, the, when the moon is very bright, the moles lay their eggs <laughs> at the mouth of the burrow, you see, and she goes... <laughs> really? <laughs> I never knew that. And one time she said she'd heard somebody talking about Mary, Queen of Scots, and she said, oh, well, who, 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 who? I've, I've heard her name before. Who's Mary, Queen of Scots? I said, well, she was a, a Scottish caber thrower <laughs> who got killed during the Blitz. <laughs> but the fact that her focus of her attention was so so much on her own life at this moment was, uh, it was, it was, I, oh dear. I used, and the extraordinary thing was, she lived so long. She was born in 1899 and she lived, lived to the year 2000. Wow. 101. So she's, her life, uh, I, I say this in my stage, show, I say her life spanned the entire 20th century. You know, she lived through the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo, the First World War, uh, the, 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 the Great Depression, the rise of, of, of Hitler and Stalin, the Second World War, the atomic bomb, the space age, the Cold War, the collapse of communism. She lived through it all without Did she know really noticing any of it. <laughs> So there are two ways we can go now. I'm... All right. Which, which way did you first? Uh, so this is the first time you've been back here in a while. What have you been up to? Oh, yes. Um, everything uh, was, was described just now. They asked me, would I come, you know, and, and uh, I said, well, what do you mean a visiting professor? What am I supposed to do? And I can still remember someone said to me, well, you have to come up here twice a year and stir things up a bit. <laughs> and I thought that was such a wonderful invitation. And then I had a, had a great seven years and then two more. And then I was hit with this ridiculous divorce. Um, and I had to find $20 million, <laughs> which is a lot. You know, you can't pay someone $20 million just by sitting around watching television. So. <laughs> Uh, the trouble was, I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and finally I cleared it all off, and I'm fine now. I've also got my head back above water, so I now hope to come back regularly if the provost still needs a professor. <laughs> So what are, you, what are you working on now? Are you um, writing another show? I'm writing a show which, uh, in many ways, um, it sort of began in Cornell when I met David Dunning. Now, David's a stunning uh, soci uh, social psychologist, 
that's how he describes himself. He has now gone to Michigan. Michigan. But he's coming. He's, he's here in the next couple of days. He's presenting a paper on Friday, I think. Yes. And um, I met him, and he was fascinated by... Uh, he'd always been fascinated by whether people were good at understanding... Uh, how, how good people were at knowing how good they were at doing things. In other words, self-assessment. And he carried out a series of tests with a young student called Kruger. And, uh, and what he discovered was that in order to know how good you are at something requires almost exactly the same skills as it does to be good at that thing in the first place, <laughs> you see, with a wonderful corollary, which explains so much of the world, which is that if you are absolutely no good at something, you lack exactly the skills and aptitudes that you need to know that you're no fucking good <laughs> and, It explains a great deal, <laughs> because what happens as you get older, and I promise you, I'm not exaggerating at all, is that you begin to realize, first of all, that almost nobody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> right? Gives us thumb. Very few people. <laughs> Extraordinary thing about being in Cornell is that there are a few people around who really do know about something. You see? And that's very rare. <laughs> All right? That's the first thing. The, uh, the second thing is you have to realize that as a result of this, this, this uh, mental aberration we have, um, most people are no good at their jobs. Um, I wrote two books for the psychiatrist, Robin Skinner. And he was a remarkable guy. He was a bomber pilot during the war. You know, there's not many psychiatrists who were bomber pilots during the war. You can't, can't imagine Sigmund Freud sitting in the back of a bomber. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a remarkable man. He knew more about people. And meeting him changed my life in a way, which we'll talk about. You know, it moved me out of my sort of... I was a victim of a good British education, is the way I always put it. Um, and he, he was quite marvelous. And I said to him on one occasion, I said, Robin, in your profession, how many, how many people, what percentage of, 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 of psychiatrists know what they're doing? And I remember he said to me, about 10%. <laughs> and I was shocked. But from then on, whenever I met someone who I just instinctively knew was particularly good at their job. I would say, how many people in your profession really know what they're doing? I never got an estimate higher than 20. <laughs> I asked the question many times. Sometimes it was as low as five. <laughs> but it was normally 10 to 15% was people's <laughs> guess. So that means that six out of seven people don't really know what they're doing. I mean, they've learned a process or a procedure, but if that doesn't work, then they're lost like I am when my computer crashes. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> so this is quite a, quite a starting point if six out of seven people don't know what they're doing. And it explains why the world doesn't work. You see? <laughs> People sometimes say, well, why does the world work? The answer is, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. <laughs> it's hopeless. So I'm writing this show called Why There Is No Hope. <laughs> and, <clears throat> the 
nice thing is I started it year... <laughs> oh, he's got a camera. I thought you were leaving. Oh, that's all right if you've got a camera. What was I? Do you remember? Why there is no hope. Oh, why there is no hope. Yeah. <clears throat> when I start out, I say to the audience, you know, a lot of you come to hear me tell you why there is no hope, and uh, you think I mean it humorously, but I don't. <laughs> you see? And I then point out to them that there is absolutely no hope. Uh, there's always been no hope. But it's even worse now. Shall I tell you, <laughs> shall I tell you something interesting? I met a man, you hardly believe this, in Sarajevo four weeks ago, who runs one of the biggest, if not the very biggest marketing company in America. He tells me he has profiles of somewhere between 185 and 190 million people. He has profiles. This, this person likes this, doesn't like that, likes that. And I, I was in the middle of a conversation with him, and, and we started talking about attention span. And he said, well, do you know in, in 1990, when they measured the average uh, attention span, it was about, for, for, for most people, it was about 15 seconds. For young people, it was about 15 seconds. Uh, at the moment, recent, uh, measurements of it suggest it's now at about six seconds. Attention span is at six seconds. Now, I want you to guess what the attention span of a goldfish is. <laughs> it's nine seconds. <laughs> How can there be any hope? <laughs> In a society where people have a less good attention span than the goldfish. <laughs> and you can go on and on and on and on. I mean, I, I, I had a, a minor problem with a, a, a little bit of surgery in my leg. I was naughty and lazy about taking the stitches out, and I had to go and see a very good specialist at Cromwell Road Hospital. And when I saw him four weeks ago, and he said, it's fine, it's healed now, We've, we started chatting about this, and he said, do you know that during the doctor's strike in New York a few years ago, the death rate went down? <laughs> So I got on the computer, I hate computers, I got on the computer and, and looked. And there's some wonderful statistics there. I mean, there was a big analysis from a very respected academic medical journal of five different doctor strikes, and in no case did the death rate ever go up. In three out of five of the cases, it went down. When there is a, a conference of cardiologists, Right? Cardiologists leave the hospital and go to the conference, so the death rates at the hospital drop. <laughs> but the good news is that when they uh, uh, come back from the conference, the, the death rate recovers. <laughs> right? Then I, I was with my cardiologist a few weeks ago, and he said, we got it, well, when you're my age, you spend most of your time talking to doctors, really. Are you any good at 
doctoring? No. Because I've got a bit, well, I'll tell My you My wife's later. a nurse. She's right there. Really? Where, where are you? Are you a nurse? I've got a problem with my back. Can I talk to you? <laughs> what was I talking about? Oh, yes. So I said, I said to him, what, what is this about sugars and fats? He said, John, for 60 years, we cardiologists have got it wrong. It's not fats that cause heart trouble. It's sugars. And I said, well, wait a minute. For 60 years? And he said, yeah, yes, yeah. so he said, but there was a lot of research. And he said, oh, well, it's much easier to get research for projects that confirm the current paradigm. See what I mean? If you challenge the current paradigm, so, so nobody challenges because they don't get funds for, for doing that. You see, that's the sort of stuff you're up against, the paradox and the contradiction. So that's why I say there is absolutely no help. There's less help at the moment, of course, because naturally of President Trump, which is the most extraordinary thing that's happened in my lifetime. I couldn't believe that people had voted for him. And it reminded me, when I was 18, I went to professional wrestling for the first time <laughs> in the Colston Hall, Bristol. And these huge hulks came out. And they were wonderful athletes, wonderful, but terrible actors. <laughs> Just terrible. And the worst acting you've ever seen in your life. And yet the fascinating thing was that about 40% of the audience thought it was real. <laughs> now, if they can't see with their own eyes that it's phony, how could you explain to them that it's phony if they can't see it? That's how I felt about people voting for Trump. <laughs> it's inexplicable. <laughs> Although, he has given me one or two very, well, the, Trumps, the Trump supporters have given me. My, my biggest laugh two years ago was when they asked a woman about that recording that was made when he talked to a young chap called Billy Bush. And just, excuse the bad language, but you remember what he said. He said well, that if you were a celebrity, then women more or less expected you to grab their pussies. Do you remember he said that? Yeah. And a woman, um, a middle-aged woman who was uh, a Trump supporter who was defending him was asked about him making that remark. She said, well, he would never have said that if he would known he was being recorded. <laughs> it is hopeless. But the, the, the great thing about... When you realize that it is completely hopeless, you start to relax, and then your aims become more reasonable, which is to do with, you see what I mean? You say, well, I'll tell you what, instead of changing society, I'll just be nice to a dozen people instead. <laughs> because that's achievable, you see what I mean? That was John Cleves with Cornell University Press Director Dean Smith. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase John Cleves' new book, Professor at Large. Please visit us at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promotion code 09POD at checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>